when occasionally I visit different churches, I like looking, looking around for the mission statement of that new church that I'm in. Sometimes they have it up on the wall, sometimes they have it in the literature that's available in the foyer. And over the years I've seen many different kinds of um, mission statements that churches have come up with, either by passing minutes or writing them in balloons or however they come to it. But all the time I keep thinking that the CEO of our organisation, its founding manager and owner, has already given us the mission statement of his church. And we find it repeated four times in the Gospels, as you'd expect, in each of the Gospels, because it's crucial to each one of them, then and to us. The first one's in Mark, the first one I mention, um, because I want to wind up with the one from John to have a little closer look at. But let's briefly look at the four mission statements, as, well, the mission statement as the four Gospels record them. One from Mark, let's begin at verse, six, at verse 14 of chapter 16. Last of all, Jesus appeared to the eleven disciples as they were eating. He scolded them because they didn't have faith and because they were too stubborn to believe those who had seen Jesus alive. He said to them, Go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to the whole human race. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Wouldn't it be fun to know just what Jesus said when he scolded them? Do you ever think of Jesus scolding his disciples? Gospel writers don't tell us. Like Jesus, they're focusing on one thing that's important. And back from life, back from death, into life, going into heaven, the one thing he has to say is go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to the whole human race. But in a I'm a bit relieved that he had to scold them. Because disciples haven't changed much, have they? How hard it is to believe just what Jesus says and to do what he wants. And if Jesus would turn up now, what do you think he'd be saying to us? Luke, he tells us a little bit more about how Jesus tried to get his stunned, unbelieving disciples moving. In Luke 24, we read from verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, This is what is written, The Messiah must suffer and must rise from death, and three days later, and then he and rise from death three days later. And in his name the message about repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus takes them back to scriptures and shows them how right from the beginning of the Bible God had intended his love to be spread throughout the whole world. Remember when he chose Abram way back in the beginning. He promised Abraham, through you I will bless all nations. And when Jesus called his disciples and asked them to follow him, he made it quite plain that it wasn't just a junket for them, a tour around the Holy Land with free food and lodgings. His purpose being, as he said in Matthew 4, come, follow me, and I will make you 
fishes of men. For some of, some of us, that analogy of fishing is more appropriate than others. But I think you can all understand it. <laughs> you can just pick them on the beach. And Luke, again, when he begins his second book, The History of the Early Church, that's the book of Acts, he begins by restating Jesus' mission statement. In Acts 1.8, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be filled with power, and you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If we understand Scripture, if we are filled with his Spirit, if we are a disciple of Jesus, we will be out there in the world sharing his love with as many as we possibly can. I don't know how often you get in a boat and go fishing. That's not important. But if you're part of his church, how often are you witnessing for Jesus? And then Matthew. Well, in his gospel... He gives us the fullest version of Jesus' mission statement, which is traditionally called the Great Commission. When they saw him, they worshipped him, even though some of them doubted. There's that doubting thing again. Jesus drew near and said to them, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go then to all the peoples everywhere, and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. Over four million people were killed in the civil war that saw the creation of Bangladesh in 1971 and in the post-war period the nation was filled was filled with all kinds of relief agencies and missions who swarmed into the country and it became very obvious that the government had to bring down regulations to control these agencies or NGOs as they're often called and they created piles of forms which all had to be filled in requiring every organization, in particular, to state their objects, the purpose for being in the country. Now, many people thought it would be a time for this new Muslim nation to cull all the missionaries, a very good time. And many of the Christian ones, even missions, um, took to describing their staff, if they could, as doctors, as nurses, accountants. But when we sat down and thought about it, we felt, well, if we're going to be kicked out, we better make sure we're kicked out for standing up for the Lord and for nothing else. And so we wrote, what is written in the Constitution of our New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society, what is the main object and purpose of the society and that is to enable churches of the Baptist Union in New Zealand to fulfill the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, these verses from Matthew 28 are actually quoted there. 
We went up to the government office to lodge our forms. And I remember watching as the officials scanned them. And remember him saying very distinctly, so you're all missionaries, he said. And you could have just about dropped off my seat when his next word was, Balo, good. We know you are people of the book, El Kitabi, that's what Muslims refer to Christians as, and Jews. And Hazrat Isa, Asa Salam, he said, is also one of our prophets. That's Jesus. Not only did our mission survive the cull that followed, but the NZBMS was granted more visa slots for new missionaries to come into the country than we've ever been able to fulfill since. At the time, we applied for something like 18 or 20. They gave us 56. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And he also said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And this brings us to John. John's Gospel, chapter 20. From verse 19 we read, That Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were all filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's as though there was nothing more important that he had to do now than to make sure his disciples got out into the whole world. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You remember John 3:16? God so loved, loved the world so much that he sent his one and only Son. So I am sending you. Jesus began his mission to the whole world in a physical body that was able to walk around Palestine. And now, having risen from the dead and returned to heaven, he created another body in this world which was able to walk around not just Palestine, but the rest of the world, declaring God's love and the good news of the kingdom. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Send. It's a very ordinary little English word. But when it comes to translating those who have been sent, English doesn't have a handy word. And so people translating the scriptures created one from the Greek word that they were translating from. And that word is apostle. And when they came to translate the scriptures as they did early on into Latin, they had to, in Latin, create a word from the Latin word meaning to send, to send. And that word is missionary. Apostle, missionary, same meaning, same word, meaning those who are sent. So 
So that means everywhere in the New Testament, when you read the word apostle, you can also read it as missionary. Unfortunately, we get lost in the power structures of the church and imagine that the apostles were just the big guys that sat up the top and gave all the orders. On the contrary, they were the ones whom Jesus sent. The first of the ones whom Jesus sent. J.B. Phillips, in his translation of Ephesians, Paul, Ephesians 4.11, uses the word messenger, which is probably about the nearest we can get in English to those who are sent. Messenger. You know that verse? That the Lord Jesus, that, that, the, that the gifts that Christ gave to the church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, J.B. Phillips reads, some he made his messengers. The apostles were the first missionaries of the church. And there were more than the original twelve. Paul himself was one. And the New Testament mentions many others by name. And one of them was even a woman. In the New Testament we read how they were supported by their various local churches. How appeals were made. Collections were taken up. Prayers were made were offered for them time and time again. And when the missionaries came back home on furlough, they reported to the church. It's all there in the New Testament. So we're doing nothing new in, this week, in these weeks of prayer and self-denial. Now, obviously, not everyone is sent out of town or gone overseas. And that's where we have to realise that this other little common word in English, you, causes problems. Because in English, we don't have a plural and a singular form of the word you. In the first person, we do. I and us. In the third person, we have he and she and they. But in the second person, if I'm talking about you, you guys, <laughs> that's it, use guys. Something like that. Y'all, yeah, the, the Americans say y'all. Do you know that word in it from America? You all, y'all, right. Okay. So when Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's very clear in the, in the Greek, as it is in the Bengali, that he is not talking to one person. He's talking to the whole lot as a group. And he hasn't delegated this mission of going into the world just to one or two individuals. He's delegated to you all. To use guys, the church. For the Jesus mission is the core business of the church. Jesus put his body on the line to share the good news to the whole world, and he's still doing the same. Though now the body looks a little bit different. But he's committing his body, you and me, to going into all the world. We're in this together. It's a family business. I remember once stopping on the outskirts of Hamilton to pick up some Chinese takeaways. And I walked down past to the little shop. The car park was fairly empty. There was a couple of young boys, eight, six, five, playing in the, in the car park there. We went into the shop and these two boys scuttled past us. The older one got up on a box behind the counter and said, yes, what do you want? And the younger one ran out the back saying, mummy, there's a customer here. It's a family business, everything. So everything we do in church, whatever our programs may be, are valid if they have this one heart desire to reach one more person for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to serve up in a hamburger, in a toy library, in a youth work, in a children's work, however which way, the love of God and Christ, and to ask people to respond to him. Everything we must do in our church, our lifestyles, our choices, our business activities, our worth ethic, our, our programs, everything we do and say must reflect Jesus' missions to save the lost and to bring some by any means into the kingdom. You know that verse from 1 Corinthians 9, 22? I do everything I can to win everyone I possibly can. I do all this for the good news because I want to share in its blessings. I well remember my father's anguish when he came in holding his precious chisel that has little ruts all along the top of the blade. And he said, who's been using my chisel for a screwdriver? Now, if you know, as I discovered at the time, screwdrivers are quite good for taking, uh, chisels are quite good for taking out screws. <laughs> Likewise, we can use the church for all kinds of things. We can have good fellowship, we can have good food, we can have good music, we can have good services. But if that's all we're doing, Businesses that diversify too much, that don't stick to their core business, can often run into trouble. And that is true of the church. History is full of examples of the churches that have been distracted into doing other good, other things, no matter how good and how necessary. But because they've neglected this core business, they have suffered. You know the phrase? Stick to your knitting. You notice that verse that we've got there? Have we still got it there? Yeah. I want to share in its blessings. I just want to finish by giving two examples of the blessings that I've discovered in the privilege of sharing the love of God worldwide. And the first one is unity. Yeah, unity. You speak to anybody that's been actively engaged in mission worldwide, you will discover that they have an appreciation of the worldwide Church of God, which is absolutely phenomenal and something so worthwhile. Remember Jesus prayed, I and them and you and me, so that they may be completely one in order that the world may know that you sent me. On the mission field, amongst Catholics, Presbyterians, and Baptists from Australia, United Kingdom, um, Europe. Europe. United Kingdom is not in Europe anymore, is it? No, that's right. America, that's right. A phenomenal unity in the faith. One that's so, so precious. And I could give many examples, but I want to give you one. That's that. It's a Bible. Belonged to my grandfather. It looks rather gaudy. Probably because, as he did, he used to take it out when he was fishing. He had a commercial fishing launch out of fishing. He was a commercial fisherman out of Thames. And can we have the next slide?
in its cover, it's written to Father from Joe, Peter, Anna, and John, his children. 10th of March, 1927. Hans Jensen, he was, lived in Mackey Street, Thames. This is just 10 years after he'd brought his young family to New Zealand. They couldn't speak a word of English. And he and his two sons that were fishing with him, my father included, would sit out while they're waiting for the nets to fill up with flounder, reading their Bibles, one in English and one in Danish, so they could learn English. But the other remarkable thing about this Bible is what's written on the other page of that dedication there. I've got it up on the screen. Can you read it? It just says simply Tipra, H. Jones, 1837. Harry Jones was one of the New Zealand Baptist Mission Societies that was responsible in that time in what was then East Bengal for going north into the hill, hill regions of northern India to the Tipra people. And they had, the Lord had given them a vision for that. And in 1938, at the beginning of that time, when they were spreading the vision throughout New Zealand churches to pray for the Tipra people, Harry Jones had turned up in Thames and had spoken about it. It had caught my grandfather's heart and he had got Harry Jones to sign the Bible and write that in as his commitment to praying for those people. Forty years later, Diane and I were in the same area of the world and the people who became Christians first in the area while we were there were Tipras. They were a minority group in Bangladesh, very much depressed. But over the years there, we worked with four or five brand new little churches, teaching, pastoring, encouraging, cajoling, feeding, a lot of worm medicine and other stuff providing houses where we had to. And during that time also, because the word of the Lord had spread vastly amongst the Tipra people across the border in India, where today there are over hundreds of thousands of Tipra people that have come to know the Lord, and they have a, a very big indigenous church there operating and reaching many hundreds of people monthly in their outreach amongst the tribe people of northern India. You see the unity I'm talking about. A unity of faith, a unity of family, a unity of geography, a unity of culture, and all created by the unity that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be positively scary at times. Wonderfully scary. When I get to. The second blessing that I've found are signs and wonders. And remember today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day that we remember particularly that verse from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be filled with power and you'll be witnesses for me in all Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
And the verse from John 14, I'm telling you the truth. Those who believe in me will do what I do. Yes, they will do even greater things because I'm going to the Father. Jesus gives us his spirit not just to make us feel good personally, not just to assure us of conviction of sins, not just to give us a precious heavenly language, though of course he does all those things. But for what purpose? To enable us to go into all the world. And Luke went on to record some of the amazing things, the much greater things, the signs and wonders that they saw at that period as the early church tackled the might of Rome. But across two millennia, the story has continued. Keep reading that story. Better still, keep being involved in that story. Greater things, staggering things. I've mentioned already a little bit about what happened in Tipperah. But to bring it home to New Zealand, at a time when the New Zealand government is insisting that history be taught in primary schools in New Zealand, we at least should be reading the story of faith in New Zealand and the mighty things that happened here, particularly amongst the Maori, up until 1840 and the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Because you know what? The secular world is playing absolute havoc with that history. Beginning with even Sir George Grey, and I'm very sorry for you that live in Governor Grey, because he told a big lie about the, about the missionaries in New Zealand buying land and causing the Maori Wars, the land wars. That was... A, an official document that he wrote that became official policy in the UK and resulted in the main missionary in New Zealand, Henry Williams, being sacked until missionaries from this country accompanied by two or three chiefs went back to set the record straight in Britain and Gray had to recant and publicly apologise and the missionary was reinstated. But that lie is still being told. And you can see it on the official websites of the New Zealand government. Another one, too, is that the missionaries mucked up the translation of the Treaty of Waitangi. Don't get me on to it. But besides all that, there is a tremendous story of the way that the Maori people, by their hundreds and thousands, came to the Lord mainly slaves in the north, where the Napui in all its raids down through the North Island had captured people and taken them back. And there, because they were worthless dung, the missionaries could have them and educate them. And they came to know the Lord. And when they gained their freedom, they went back, right through the country, right through the middle of the country, right down to the Kaipara region, so that when Europeans for the first time began to walk through that area, what did they find? Paths and churches. They'd be coming in the evening 
up a valley and they'd hear, they're wondering where the power was because they couldn't see it through the bush. And they would hear the bells of the church ringing to call the people to prayer. Signs and wonders, far greater. Far greater. It's all there. Amazing stuff to read. If you don't see signs and wonders, maybe you're not looking in the right place. Maybe you're not praying. Maybe you're not involved. Because really, this commission that the Lord Jesus has given to us, his church, is not one for spectators. You've got to get your boots on and play the game. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For the way that you've loved us and that you've put us together. For the blessings with which you surround us, though we know the, hardly the least of it. And we're so blind to what's happening around our ears, let alone what's happening before, that we don't care about what you want to do in the future. Please, Lord, by your Spirit, encourage us. And on this day again, fill us by your Spirit, that we may be your people at this time in your world, for your glory and the salvation of those who yet don't know you. We pray in Jesus' name.